0: Welcome to Brain and Vet. We're delighted to be joined by Colin Bird, and we're going to be talking about dignity. Colin, would you like to start with the real case?
1: Yes, I would. I'd like to invite listeners to think for a bit about the Nazi Holocaust, which I think is, for most of us, an archetypical assault on human dignity. That seems to me to be pretty much settled case law and moral philosophy at this point. Now, on standard views about human dignity, particularly those that are influenced by the Kantian tradition. Dignity is construed as a kind of unchanging and inherent value or worth that is possessed by persons and that commands various moral duties of respect for the bearers of such dignity. And of course, this is often cashed out in terms of human rights. People say, why are we supposed to Uh, respect human rights. The standard answer is because the human rights reflect the inherent worth or dignity of the person, something like that. And the question I want to, you know, begin with is, is this standard view really up to the task of explaining our settled intuition that the Holocaust was a massive assault on human dignity? And the difficulty, I think, with this approach is that it fixates too much on specific acts of wrongdoing committed by individuals involved. Soldiers, military officials, collaborators, train drivers, perhaps the engineers who designed the gas chambers and other equipment. The thought is they acted in ways that violated a duty to respect the victim's inherent dignity. Now, certainly focusing on individual wrongdoing is very important, especially if we're interested in assigning moral or legal culpability. But I don't think that this approach can be the whole story when it comes to the way in which human dignity is implicated in genocide. And there are two problems that I want to draw attention to. The first is that wrongdoing of this general sort is also a very common, albeit thankfully rarer, feature of ordinary civilized conditions. Even at the best of times, people still assault one another, they rape each other, they steal from each other, they murder each other. And these are all ways for individuals to fail to respect the victim's inherent dignity uh, or their basic rights. So it would seem, if we accept that story, that the only real difference between the Holocaust and normal conditions, it's just a matter of degree. The Holocaust on this sort of view was an atrocity and an assault on human dignity only because of the greater volume and density of individual acts of wrongdoing. And that seems to me, this is the first problem, that seems to me to massively underdescribe the Holocaust and its implications for human dignity. Surely there's some kind of difference in kind between genocidal conditions and those of everyday civilized life. But the second problem is that the traditional view assumes that agent's inherent dignity is fixed and unchanging. It belongs to people as an inalienable possession, and nothing anyone does to them can destroy or damage it. But if that's so, then we have to say something that I think is very odd, which is that the inherent dignity of Holocaust victims survived unchanged despite everything that happened to them. They arrive at Auschwitz, they're shoved off the cattle cars, they're separated from their families, they're sent at gunpoint to extermination chambers. Yet in all of this, their human dignity shimmering within them remains intact nevertheless. It was there all along, and the problem is simply that the prison guards and the soldiers failed to notice it and to comply with various duties that it commands. And as I say, I think that's a very odd way to put it. When I see footage of Auschwitz, I see nothing I would call human dignity. I see a radical privation of human dignity. But if that's right, then human dignity isn't something that can just survive unchanged in the face of genocidal circumstances and abuse. It can suffer damage. And I think on, reflecting, accept, on reflection, accepting a transient view of human dignity such that it's vulnerable and fragile has a key advantage for why care about something whose existence and integrity is guaranteed in any case. Intuitively, we care most about those things that are most vulnerable and most fragile. So the usual assumption that human dignity deserves a kind of adamant, unconditional protection becomes much easier to explain, I think, if we regard it as something transient, vulnerable, damageable, destructible. So the conclusion that I draw from this, and this is what the book uh, I've just written is all about, is that we need a new account of human dignity to do justice to all of this, and that the traditional account just doesn't get us there.
2: So this is fascinating. It's fascinating for me for two reasons. So the one is that I'm very much an individualist and I struggle to, to understand notions of groups. I don't believe groups exist. So on your account, I would be missing something fundamental about explaining what is wrong with the Holocaust, what is wrong, what, what went wrong in a genocide. So the, 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 the difficulty I would have is it's hard enough to understand what the dignity of an individual means or what's, what constitutes it or what's involved. But now you're going to have to tell me what I'm assuming in order to explain what really went on. Your account is going to start to talk about the dignity of a group of people. And that's going to be very tough. So that's my first objection. So I would kind of want to know what that is. What is the, What does it mean for a group of people to have dignity that's over and above? the dignity of the individuals involved. The second second, um, thing that comes to mind, the second objection is, when you talk about a transient account of dignity. So a Jewish person arrives at Auschwitz and they are treated in an abominable way and their dignity is undermined. Now here's the problem. If you think that a person's dignity is the reason why you should treat them well, you've now removed their dignity. So now after you've done so, do you owe them anything after that? Can you now continue to treat them abominably and have you done nothing wrong? That seems counterintuitive.
1: Yes, both very good, very good questions. I think I'm going to take the second one first because I think that's the slightly easier one uh, to deal with. So my response to that is to say that you're, you're, you're reinterpreting my view in traditionalist terms, right? So the traditionalist view just is, the strength of a duty or the reason to comply with a duty to treat people in a certain way is the fact that they possess something. And you're pointing out that by the logic of such a view, if they cease to possess it, then it would seem that the reason to comply with the relevant expectation would similarly diminish in force, right? But I'm I'm trying to suggest something a little bit more radical than that. I'm, I'm trying to completely break with the idea that the ground for treating people in a certain way, the ground of any, any prohibition, rests on de- detecting the presence of some possession, right? It's a radically non-possessive account of, of human dignity. On my, Now, th- there is one exception to that. That is, I mean, I accept a conception of what I call in the book personal dignity, which really refers to the dignity of demeanor, right and and how you look and how you come across that's the kind of dignity we lose when we fly off the handle or, or 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 you know we're emaciated and hungry and we've lost control of our bodily functions and so forth and of course that's part of what happened to the victims of the of the holocaust and i think it's important to point out that that was one of the effects of it it diminished people's personal dignity Right. But since I'm not saying that their personal dignity as a kind of possession of themselves is the reason to treat them a certain kind of way, I regard it more in the way a utilitarian would. It's, it's, it's a consequence that is very, very bad, and that's the reason why we don't why we don't want to sub- subject people uh, to to that sort of treatment. So, so that's my general response to the second. The first one, I think, is much more complicated, and it, it it it's a genuine worry because I share actually your skepticism about groups and collectivities as subjects of things like rights and responsibilities and so forth. So, what I want to say is that. I guess I want to deny that my alternative requires that there be a group that is the bearer itself of this transient kind of dignity, right? I guess I'm inclined to say that we should think of dignity, in in my sense, more as an event or a series of events that occur in human interaction, rather than something that is possessed by some collective subject. Now, what you wind up with, on my view, is certainly a relational account of human dignity, but I think it remains loyal to a certain kind of individualism in the following way, right? On my story, it's not that Jason's dignity is just there. I notice that he's a human being with dignity, and I then realize now I have to comply with the duty to respect him in a certain kind of way, right? That's the traditional view. I want to reverse it. I want to say, look, I recognize you as a human being. In recognizing you as a human being, that's going to trigger certain kinds of uh, effective responses. It's going to um, direct my attention or fail to direct my attention towards you uh, in a respectful or disrespectful uh, way. When it triggers, as a matter of fact, that kind of emotional response, then the result is that our relation conforms with some expectation of of dignity or even that our interaction is thereby dignified, right? I think this is consistent with individualism because all of the work is being done by stuff that happens in someone's head, namely in the receiver's head. Right. The the difference between my view and the traditional view is just that the relevant individual is not the person who bears human dignity. It's the person who responds to another person in a way as to engender something like human dignity in their relationship to that other person. And I think that's consistent with individual individualism. It's just it decenters human dignity from the target of our treatment
0: so i've got two follow-up questions the one is that dignity strikes me as an ambiguous term so sometimes when people talk about dignity they're talking about well-being and they can talk about how your well-being can be undermined you can be in a worse off state of affairs and sometimes you're talking about autonomy your ability to make free choices it also strikes me as the case that we could talk about someone's capacity for dignity and that that might remain uh stable in some senses in other words you could have dignity taken away from you but nonetheless remain it to have a capacity for dignity so there was other words you could have been a possessor of this thing but you were deprived of it and so i think you're right to say that any account must take into effect that there's a transience in your well-being states and and how much autonomy that you're able to exercise but in virtue of being an ordinary human being, one has the capacity to have those things and that remains constant. And so, what's objectionable about treating someone poorly is that they are the kind of being that had these capacities. And that's in that way we can recognize that you're doing something wrong by dispossessing them of it. We might also say then, once someone ceases to have those capacities, so we can imagine. A person who loses control of their mind and uh, let's say loses any ability to experience suffering that a comatose person might be a good case that we could say that person who is permanently comatose has no capacity for dignity and therefore you could not undermine their dignity they are not the kind of being that can be undermined uh, because they lack the capacity
1: okay there's a lot lot there i'm gonna Leave aside the question of of well-being for for now, and and we can we can circle back to it. Except to say that I I think that it's a, a subtle feature of as it were dignitarian discourse, which which I want to preserve, that we are talking some about something that isn't just reducible to to welfare and, and well-being. So I'm not quite sure what to do with that, but maybe, maybe you can you can elaborate on the way in which dignity might be thought of as a form of, form of well-being. With regard to autonomy, I think what I want to say there is, yes, absolutely, people have a kind of basic capacity for autonomy, but we should call a spade a spade, and that's what it is. It's a capacity for autonomy. It's not in and of itself any sort of dignity. The, the, the dignity or the human dignity comes in when it's the case that other people's treatment of a person attends to the fact that they are autonomous in the right sort of way and human dignity is damaged on my account or is rendered denuded in some in some admittedly rather obscure way i mean i think this is a this is a a real problem about my account and we well, no, don't come back to that but i hope it's a problem to be solved rather than a problem to just you know destroy the view the idea is that failing to respect your autonomy right i change our relationship i subjugate you i dominate you in some way and it's at that interactive level that the indignity takes place right so i don't really have a problem with accepting that there are various kinds of traits capacities valuable features of people that including capacities that are sort of with them i just don't want to identify any of those with human dignity and part of the reason for that is the reason that was mentioned earlier that once you hitch it to those capacities Then you face the problem of what do you say about the comatose person who had this capacity and now doesn't? Do we say, well, they now don't have any dignity? And that seems a rather brutal view and actually not too far away from the sorts of views that the Nazis liked to peddle, identifying some people as fully human (laughs) and others as subhuman and so forth. And I don't think we want to go down that road at all. Whereas my view, I think, has the virtue with regard to the comatose person, right, that regardless of whether that person is ever going to recover any of their capacities, we can still treat them with or without respect. I right? mean, we can take the comatose person and we can treat them like trash, just throw them out the window and kill them. And to my mind, if we were to treat them in that way, that would be if any observer was watching us do that, right? Right. That would be to the detriment of a common human dignity, would be an example of an event that would count against the idea that we are treating one another in a way that uh, fortifies and reinforces a common human dignity. Whereas if we treat the comatose patient with a certain degree of respect, we, we have anxious hand-wringing deliberations about whether we should turn off the life support machine we think about treating the body with a certain degree of respect we respect the person's privacy and anticipate what their wishes would be we we are attending with respect to that person even though they're not conscious and able to express their wishes and we dignify our relationship to them in that way so i think that's what i would say about the comatose case so the resident
2: utilitarian sitting in my chair uh, <laughs> wants to know why you can't just reduce your account to the command, maximize certain dignified outcomes for the people that you act towards. So in all of your relations, maximize dignified outcomes.
1: Well, I mean, there's two questions there. I mean, what one is really the question of why is my account better than the utilitarian alternative? And that, that's a big question we can, we can come to that, but. In terms of why my view is different from, it doesn't just collapse into a consequentialist utilitarian view, I would say there's two important differences. Although I don't really say this in the book, I think I would want to defend the view that, yes, we're concerned with certain kinds of outcomes, the outcomes of interactions. And in political theory, we're, of course, especially concerned with outcomes that have the property of being iterated, organized, Pervasive in institutional life, right? But I think the sort of view I'm offering would actually point towards a kind of logic of sufficiency rather than a maximizing logic. That is, the idea would be that what societies are responsible for, as far as protecting human dignity is concerned, is making sure that whatever happens in the organized routines, no one is, as I put it in the book, so forsaken. Uh, by the significant others and significant institutions that handle them day to day that we couldn't say of their relationship to their society that it counted for fortifying human dignity. And I think that's that's a kind of sufficiency standard. I think that also resonates with our kind of settled view that dignitarian discourse has a kind of negative. It's not about promoting a goal. It's about protecting human society against the worst kinds of abuses. It's a kind of dignity of fear kind of view, if you will. And then I would also suggest there's a second difference, which is I I don't think that the outcomes I'm talking about are hedonic or to do with welfare. They are just outcomes about the disposition of human relationship. And I don't think it's about the well-being of a collectivity either. It's hard to put our finger on it, right? But if you imagine a kind of orderly queue at the ticket desk, right, with people respecting each other, not barging to the front of the line, you know, you compare that to a brawl. you know, everybody mobs the ticket desk, right? It's elbowing (laughs) themselves out of the way. I I want to say that we we can have those two pictures before us and say, well, one of these is dignified, and the other is, is not dignified. It's just, it's just a chaotic brawl, right? And I don't think that difference is a difference in terms of anyone's well-being. I mean, it might be the case that the people doing the brawling are having a great time doing it. I mean, maybe that's why they're doing it. Maybe they're, they're soccer hooligans who are just, just loving it, right? They just, they just want a good punch-up, right? But it still lacks a, a kind of dignity that is present if people observe an orderly cue. And I don't, so I don't think it's about welfare
0: couple of questions. The one is, is it possible to talk about dignity without reference to society? So is it possible for Robinson Crusoe is on his island? Does he have dignity? Does dignity talk make any sense? The other one would be whether one can have your dignity undermined, not by uh, other people, but by events. So for example, a disease, uh, a volcanic eruption, whether we could talk about dignity being undermined in those cases. And then the third would be, you made reference to humanity and human beings and the example i gave of the person well the the human who's in the coma who some will argue is no longer a person because they lack the sort of personhood qualities but they are still part of the class of human beings whether you think there are non-humans who could be treated with dignity or have this capacity for dignity whether it makes sense to use dignity language in referring to animals let's say
1: Yes, okay. well, three three th- I mean, I think the Robinson Crusoe one is reasonably straightforward. I mean, I, I'm assuming we're talking about a Robinson Crusoe who is to some extent socialised. I mean they' they're, they're not completely feral. they didn't they didn't just be they weren't just raised by wolves on this island. they were they were members of society and now find themselves marooned as Robinson Crusoe was on on a desert island. Right. So, I mean, in that case, I think I would say that Robinson Crusoe at that point doesn't really have to worry too much about privations of human dignity, in my sense, because there aren't any others around who who threaten. Now, that might change if the US military suddenly decided to use that island um as the site of a nuclear test and and not pay attention to the fact that there's an innocent victim there right that that then then we'd start to move into the right sort of territory the only other sense in which i think dignity is at stake i mean as i mentioned before i distinguish between human dignity which i think is is the dignity that's really important politically and in 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 the context of political and institutional criticism and then personal dignity, which, which is your ability to maintain a certain kind of dignified bearing. And that is certainly something to which Robinson Crusoe is, is liable to reductions of, right? Because if, if you're struggling to survive, you know, Joseph Raz in The Morality of Freedom has an example to illustrate his concept of autonomy, and he talks about a, a, a hounded woman who is living alone on an island and she's being pursued constantly by this monster uh, on the island and she never has a moment right to do anything except try to strategize how how on earth to escape this 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 animal and his point is that's an image of unfreedom and complete lack of autonomy and i think it would also be partly for that reason a situation that would be very hard to regard as one refracting personal dignity right because you, you don't have any time to be peaceful to be placid to live a kind of proportionate life you're, you're just constantly <laughs> engaged in this desperate struggle right and of course if you're struggling to eat you're emaciated your 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 mind is you start going crazy right again that 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 might denude a person of their personal dignity, right? But, but, but that, so, so in that sense, I think Robinson Crusoe is liable to deficits in dignity. But as long as there aren't, aren't other people around, I don't think human dignity really enters the picture. Now, as far as the very interesting question of human relations to other animals, is concerned i haven't thought a lot about this and have been aware that i should have said more about it and thought more because it's obviously been a big topic in recent in recent years and i think there's also the very interesting question of what would become of human dignity if we were suddenly invaded or visited by a highly superior species you know that, that that's an interesting set of questions as well i guess what i want to say about animals as a first cut is just that the same logic applies. Right. We can, I think, dignify our relations to animals by not, for example, treating them cruelly, putting them in, in, in factory farms and, and abusing them and making them fight each other for public ent- entertainment, this sort of thing. We can do all of that and it can conform to the logic of my story because we're attending to them in a, some, something like a respectful way. And we are thereby investing our relation to them with a certain dignified quality. Of course, it would be very odd to say that this counts for human dignity, except insofar as we think that being basically responsible humanitarian people and being attentive people itself reinforces a sense that as a species we have a certain kind of self-respect, as a as a as a as a, as a species in the way we treat treat other animals, right? But in terms of our treatment of wolves and chickens and dolphins and whales and so forth is concerned, I don't think you could, of course, you couldn't describe this as enhancing human dignity because we're talking about interspecies interspecies relations. But that doesn't mean that, that we couldn't describe it in terms of some kind of dignified relation to nature. Uh, it's just that it wouldn't, wouldn't seem right to label it human dignity
2: something that I'm curious about is whether you can provide a non-circular account of dignity. So when I ask you, well, how should I behave towards someone? You say that I should behave in a way that treats them with dignity, but that seems circular, right? I need to behave in dignified ways. That's the account of what dignity is.
1: Yes. Well, there is certainly a, a, a danger of that. But again, I, I want to emphasize how far I want to avoid thinking about dignity in terms of moral duties on the part of individuals to treat people in a certain kind of way. For me, the important question is whether, not not whether as a moral issue, you should or shouldn't treat me in a certain kind of way. I mean, that's that's the that's the traditional way of setting up the problem because the the in in moral and political philosophy, dignity has come in under the aegis of a certain kind of strongly applied ethics vision of why this category is important, right? But I'm trying to get away from that entirely. So I'm not so interested in the question of offering guidance to individuals who are deliberating about how to treat others, right? I'm interested more in the factual question of, is it in fact the case right that you can count on triggering in others especially those who have institutional power over you is it in fact the case that you can count on those institutions attending to you in a respectful manner right and that's sometimes true and it's sometimes not true I and mean, it's spectacularly not true in the case of Eastern European Jews and gypsies who were the victims of the Holocaust, right? They are radically denuded of the de facto power to command respectful attention because of the various features of strange, racist, um, fascist features of the regime that confronted them, right? So I think that the issue of circularity sort of diminishes if one just says firmly, This account is not meant to be an account that is offering individual guidance about how to treat others. It's more a diagnostic account that allows us to assess in a critical way whether all is well from the point of human dignity with the organized structures of human life for which we are commonly responsible, right? And so I think the worry about circularity would at least diminish, right? I mean, I, I say at various points in the book, or maybe only once, actually, that this is sort of an attempt to naturalize human dignity in, a, in an almost hume way. And I think it's it's striking that actually this worry about circularity is precisely one that Hume himself mentions in the, in, in, in the treatise. And I think he gets around that problem in something like the same way I'm proposing to, by transforming the question less into a kind of normative question, what should I do and how should I deliberate about what, should, what I should do? And turning it into a more anthropological empirical question about, well, what actually happens when certain groups of people confront others and in fact produce or fail to produce a certain kind of effective reaction? And that, that's a matter of fact. It's uh, in principle subject to empirical assessment. If you go back to the Holocaust example, I mean, that's what should really strike us, right? Even if these people screamed at the guards and said, look, I'm a human being, right? Th- th- that's, that's going to, in fact, have no effect whatsoever. The various beliefs, attitudes that have been drilled into the military people who are running the Holocaust, they disable any of those valuable reactions to others. And, and that's where the problem, that's where the problem lies. But it's not the problem, I think, that the the Nazi prison guard failed to deliberate adequately about how he should treat the, the people coming off it. We've left the deliberative field so far behind in the dust. We're now talking about whole structures of habitual and psychically embedded behavior. And that's, I think, the right level of analysis. And I don't think there's a circularity there.
2: So one of the ways of thinking about these problems that social ontologists adopt, one of the methodologies social ontologists are philosophers that are interested in the existence of social phenomena and different accounts of social phenomena are what might be termed objectivist accounts versus subjectivist accounts so objectivist accounts look at social groups and social phenomena from the outside you don't need to know what's going on in the heads of the individuals involved you don't need to know their intentions you look at their behaviors you look at at coordination among the members and you look at how they treat one another and you look at the effects and from the outside as it were you you um ascribe certain properties to the system and you say well the system is functioning in certain ways that are good or bad or problematic etc and it sounds like that's the approach that you're taking towards dignity you're looking at a society or a group of people or a group of, a collection of individuals in such a way that you can ascribe a certain moral properties to the system, to how those collections of individuals interact with one another, as opposed to the more traditional way, which is to say, what is going on in the head of the concentration camp guard. What is going on in the head of the person who pulls the lever to, to expel gas in the gas chamber? That that level doesn't seem nearly as important for your analysis. It, am I understanding this correctly?
1: Well, yes and no. I mean, I, I think it's really just the, the the aspect of the inward turn that I want to resist, I think, is the part that heavily stresses... Personal moral deliberation about how I can be uh, a righteous person who acts with probity and morality, right? That I definitely want to usher off stage as being unhelpful for revealing how human dignity might be a useful category in political discussion and political criticism. That's right. But it retains a, a kind of inward looking element because I'm suggesting that human dignity is constituted in part by sincere emotional responses to to other people and that this could be a weakness of my view because of course it it means that we're constantly going to be imputing to people's inward mental states certain properties on the basis of bare symptoms right what we see in their behavior now I'm not sure that we can really get around this. And and after all, we do it all the time. I mean, if you think about love relationships, I mean, we're constantly monitoring and scanning people's unconscious behavior, their facial expressions, for evidence that they really care about us in the right sort of way, right? In that sense, I think my, my account preserves an inward looking aspect. And this could be a problem for it because it it means that it's going to be a, there's going to be a lot of dispute about whether that really meant that we didn't respect you or something something like that. And, and I, I think I have to bite the bullet and say, well, that's going to be a problem would have to be solved if this account were to be developed developed further. But I, I, but I don't think it's. Um, I, I would also want to. Re- resist this sharp divide between a kind of objectivist and subjectivist account. Because I mean, I think even for other fairly familiar social properties, like money, for example, I don't think when we, when we try to understand what money is and how it circulates and its significance, I don't think you can just talk about that in terms of empirically observable circulate i mean sometimes that's okay we can talk about the velocity we can measure the velocity of money right? the speed with which bills are actually physically moving through the economy you could do that right but to fully understand money you also have to understand something about why for example a person is not going to accept some little kid's counterfeit 5 pound note when they attempt to pay for their sweets uh, that way right or or why somebody's going to feel terrible if if they suddenly go bankrupt, if the bank account suddenly is denuded of all cash or because because of some identity theft scam. So I think there's always going to be an interaction between the inner and outer with regard to these social phenomena. And I, I don't think my account is differs from standard. I mean justice, same thing, right? It it it's some kind of social property. But we can't really make sense of that social property unless we think about what it's like to resent things on the inside and to be indignant at certain things from the inside
0: so could you sketch out for us a society that you would say has um, human dignity and one that doesn't have human dignity in other words if what you're trying to do is partly an empirical project and i suppose to get a sense of how much moral language is taken away from it really whether it is naturalizing dignity in the same way that we could describe the difference between a building made of wood and a building made of steel we could just pick out those features there'd be nothing moral in either of those things can you give us descriptions of those two different places
1: yeah i mean i think you know know, the easy answer to that question is also not very informative and it's just to say well i mean look at the holocaust the holocaust is an example where there just there just isn't dignity in my sense it's basically within that particular frame of events it's basically non-existent, right? I mean, there's a group of people there who certainly have value. Uh, they certainly have all the capacities you were talking about before. Yeah. They just completely lack the power to get any of those capacities and valuable features to make any difference to their conditions of life, right? So, so that would be an example of a social situation radically denuded of dignity. I, I think certain kinds of civilized, I mean, I, you know, there are lots of problems with universities, so get me wrong. But but if you think of the 21st century university, basically orderly, yes, constantly underfunded and with all of the usual sort of internal politics, but basically this is an institution organized around and, and, and intended to uh, treat one another's members so as to bring out their valuable features, to treat them with respect, both in the learning environment uh, but also with regard to uh, other forms of treatment on campus. I, I would say the modern 21st century university is a good example of a kind of social situation that's doing pretty well in terms of all of the anxiety about making sure that we're being inclusive. And not excluding certain kinds of people, and and being appropriately attentive to diversity and so forth, right? That is a good example of an institutional framework that's doing pretty well. But I also don't think these examples are the interesting ones because I think those are those are relatively uncontroversial. I think my view is is only going to have legs if it can give us some critical purchase on more controversial questions. So, and I don't give an answer to this in the book, but, but I have the very strong intuition that my view requires that there be a serious and healthy form of democratic mutual engagement, for example, because what it is to be a democratic citizen is, on my view, not just to sort of stand on your demands and say, well, this is what I want, and then we kind of duke it out. What what it is to be to live in a democratic society is to be willing to attend to the complaints and grievances of others and to listen to people who are describing the challenges they're facing, and to spend at least some energy in trying to think about what we could collectively do to respond to them, right? So that's what sort of democracy, what are the conditions for a dignified democracy to Uh, meet in order for us to say this instantiates uh, a society in which a sufficient level of dignity is is being met with regard to all participants. That's where it gets both more complicated, more difficult for me, but also potentially interesting, because the hope is that by cashing some of this out, we might reach some surprising conclusions that some widely accepted democratic practices simply aren't up to the job. I mean, I would, for example, we, we haven't, didn't talk about this in the book, but I mean, I'm quite interested in the question of whether the political party is really a good vehicle for democratic self-government. And one reason to think not from my point of view would be, well, the problem with political parties is that the people who are supposed to be representing us are thinking more about their tribal allegiance to their party than they are about their constituents. And to the extent that that's the case, they're disrespecting their constituents and denuding the democratic process of the sort of respect that would count for human dignity. So so that's the sort of judgment that I I would want to kind of develop further and where I think this could pay some real dividends. So it's interesting to me that you
0: describe the 21st century university as a paragon of dignity. I mean, there's some sense in which I can see how the ideal of a university is that, in other words, it's a place for inquiry, it's a place for exploring a range of ideas where people do so in a manner that's about mutual respect and recognition. But it strikes me that one of the features of universities of the last 10 years is while talking about inclusivity, to do the exact opposite, which is to say okay. that there are certain views which we will not tolerate, and if you utter those views, you will be canceled. And it's to deprive people of those, that freedom, to deprive them of their ability to engage in certain realms. And it seems that here's the dignity clash is that but I think you're going to have a situation as you would in a democracy where some people say there are certain things that we will not deliberate on. We cannot talk about these things. They are off the table. And others will say the fact that you're removing them from the table is undignified. Now it's quite hard for us to empirically judge which one is the dignified society, which one is the dignified university. I'm not sure that you've given us a reason to pick one over the other, that you're going to now have these politicized takes on the same situation with a lack of agreement about which one is dignified.
1: No, I I certainly haven't given you a reason, but I would certainly hope that the kind of account that I'm giving would deliver something like, because I'm very sympathetic to the worry that you express about the, the, the sort of quiet encroachment on free discussion that's going on, the excessive identity politics and so forth, uh, the almost obsessive, you know, desire to captiously identify people to cancel because they have the wrong sorts of, the sort of country club view of of, of the country club left, as I like to think think of it, you know, constantly trying to identify people who are unworthy. right? But you know, I would say two things about that with regard to maybe the virtues of my view. I mean, one is from a dignitarian standpoint, that sort of view just seems to me to be a regression to ancien regime dignity. Actually, it's 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 like it's like dignity is an honor culture, in which there are some people who are in the in group, and then there are others who are in an out group, and it's constantly a matter of identifying who we're going to shun for whatever reason this time around or next time around right and and that's an aspect of the history of concepts of respect and honor and dignity that i think we're we're well off leaving behind but i do think some of the phenomena that you're talking about bring it back and maybe there's a there's, there's a tendency for the indulgence of the language of dignity to shove it in that direction in in which case that, that that's a liability but i think it's one that we can we can we can deal with the the other thing I would say about this, and this is, I think, related to the earlier point that we slightly uh, bracketed about consequentialism and utilitarianism, I mean, I have the strong intuition that actually what's leading the groups you described to behave in that way isn't really a sincere commitment to treating everybody with, in a way that fortifies human dignity. It's that these are groups that have a one-eyed partisan goal, right? And they're really only concerned to maximize the advantage for their point of view. And that's precisely the sort of thing, the willingness to sacrifice the individual for some noble goal, <laughs> right? The emancipation of this or that oppressed group, right? It doesn't matter if the collateral damage is a couple of white male tenured professors get canceled, right? And their lives are ruined, right? Doesn't matter. Right? That's a kind of consequentialist thinking right and and um, my view would say look wh- whenever we're just paying no attention to the content of what people say and are just treating them as not worthy of being listened to uh, and worthy only to be shunned right that counts strongly against human dignity in my sense and it's something that wherever it occurs we should adamantly oppose it so i would like to think that my my view would give us some resources for identifying that problem, moreover, in a way that isn't itself coming from any particular sectarian point of view. Right? The big advantage of dignitarian discourse, as we've historically inherited it, is that it, it at least purports to be speaking from the standpoint of common humanity. And that seems to me to have dropped out a lot lately because there's a, this obsession now with seeing everything from the standpoint of particular groups that are in some kind of perpetual antagonism and a relation of contestation. And and that seems to me to have been a disaster. And and, and the value of dignitarian discourse might precisely be that it helps to, to, to push back against that and restore some sense that we're all in it together because our common dignity is something that we all have some sort of stake in, not a welfareist stake, but because we have a need to feel that we're contributing to and share in human dignity. So, as again the resident
2: utilitarian, <laughs> there's, there, there's certain there's certain uh, notions that I'm like bulking at. So, so the one yeah. the one is I I just I I don't know I I, I struggle to get my head around the idea of dignity actually existing, even if you say it doesn't, it's not a possession of an individual. It's more of a description of the relations between individuals. I still struggle to say, well, like, what is this dignity thing? I want to touch it or smell it or taste it, and I can't. But the utilitarian doesn't have that problem, right? So the utilitarian says, well, we all know what welfare is. We all know what suffering or happiness or pleasure or pain is. We don't have to define those very clearly because we all know, we know what that is. But when it comes to dignity, it seems like you're adding something new to the universe and, and maybe just an Occam's razor approach says, well, why do we need this extra thing? You know, what, 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 why do you need this extra thing that I can't smell or taste or touch? And I'm just not sure it's there. So that's, that's my one concern. My other concern, I don't think is going to convince you, not that the first one would, but the, the second one, I'm pretty sure it won't, but someone who's on the fence might might be swayed by it. And and the concern is this. Well, when when welfare or utility and dignity clash, why should we why should we say that dignity wins? Now, some of the cases you've given involve a clash, and in those cases, dignity should win, right? So, for example, throwing out a bunch of tenured white male professors in order to, in, in order to, to promote some sort of ideology, that seems like, as you said, a certain utilitarian or consequentialist way of thinking, and it seems quite horrible and not something we'd want to pursue. But a more sophisticated utilitarianism wouldn't really be vulnerable to that criticism. So a more sophisticated utilitarian says, well, we don't want to throw out a bunch of white male tenured professors because that's going to reduce confidence in the system as a whole, and that'll have long-term negative consequences. People will be scared to talk about certain views, et cetera. So, So the more sophisticated utilitarian is going to have similar sensibilities to yours but there's going to be certain cases where he's going to want a certain, I know you're not talking about courses of action, but he wants to envision a certain type of organization or community, and you might want to envision a different organization or community. And he's going to say, but my organizational community in this very complex type of utilitarian, this sophisticated utilitarianism is going to result in overall better welfare than in yours, why should we choose your system and not mine?
1: Yeah. Okay. So on on, on the first point, I mean, I I have a certain sympathy and, and feel the force of the, you know, am I, am I inventing some new thing, which you can't see it and touch it. It doesn't really seem to be empirically accessible. I guess what I would say about that. I mean, I'm sensitive to that concern and I, I think it, it, it does, it does trouble me. I mean, the, the, the cheap way out of it is to say what I've sort of been hinting at all along, which is actually we kind of already recognize it in ordinary language and we recognize it well enough to be able to see when, it, when there are privations of it. And maybe then it's a mistake to try to give as it were, necessary and sufficient conditions for its, for its presence, right? That, that would be a quick and dirty way to deal with it. But I guess I would also be inclined to go a little bit more on the offensive and say, well, is it any more occult than, for example, the concept of wealth or prosperity, right? I mean, when you, you, you know when you go to a poor country, you're in a poor country. You know when you go to a rich country, you can sort of smell the prosperity, you can smell the money, right? But you don't literally smell the money. But, but you, know that the, you know that there's prosperity in one case, and there's there's poverty in another, right? And I don't really see why there's anything conceptually that prevents us from thinking about dignity in the same way. To be even more kind of aggressive about it, uh, to, to sort of pump one of the standard objections to utilitarianism, but I think you could say exactly what you just said about aggregate welfare, right? I mean, my pain and suffering is indeed tangible. Your pain and suffering is tangible to the extent that I see you writhing in agony and so forth and showing off. Certain, but the aggregate welfare is, I think, probably just as ephemeral category as anything else I've offered anyway. So but uh, but I think there's a real there's a real worry there. On the point about the sophisticated utilitarian, in the end, I'm not actually all that interested in sort of of reinforcing this this sharp, opposition between the classical utilitarian tradition and the dignitarian tradition. My suspicion is that your sophisticated utilitarian addressing the sorts of things I'm talking about is probably going to wind up in the sort of position that Mill found himself in. That that is allowing into the utilitarian story all kinds of things that are valuable for their own sake, and saying that actually turns out that if people in practice value certain kinds of things for their own sake rather than just for expedient reasons it, it turns out that that will have the byproduct of maximizing overall overall welfare and you know if someone takes that sort of mill position i don't know that it really is i mean you can you can You can play the philosopher's game and say, well, he's not really utilitarian anymore, and then he's smuggling in some non-utilitarian. Well, I don't think we really care about that. It's the substance of the view. So so if if a utilitarian wants to say, look, actually, I think uh, a further argument for Byrd's view of human dignity is that if societies attended more to human dignity, in my sense, and monitored more carefully the presence or absence of the required attitudes in institutional life that we have good reasons to believe that that would actually make us all better off in the long run i i I would have no real argument with such a person why well that's in a way more grist for my my mill to forgive the pun
0: so i want to give you another case imagine that i I go on a vacation and I go to this small exotic island and I walk around and I say, this is the most dignified place I've ever been to. Everybody treats each other incredibly well and people are, you know, free to kind of lead the lives of their choosing. Everyone has an, an enormous amount of money. It's just, it's a, it's a paradise. It's an unbelievable place. And I start asking some questions about how everything works and everything respects deliberation, liberation. And, and I sort of said, but there's got to be a catch guys, what's going on? They said, well, there, there is a catch. The catch is that in order to get all this prosperity, we have to make a sacrifice um, to the gods. And so what we do is that on a certain day of the year, we draw lots and we take a child and we stick them in the volcano. And it works, it works really well. And so we get to treat each other with dignity, generally, and you sort of look at it socially. And uh, yeah, this kid gets burnt to a crisp in the volcano, but it's only once a year. Is that a society that you think possesses dignity? If I keep adding kids to the volcano, at some point do you say, this isn't a dignified society. Is it dignity for the survivors, for those that are the beneficiaries? There seem to be some kind of little drops of indignity going on here. Does it study the whole thing? How do you make this assessment?
1: Well, it's an interesting case. I guess what I would say is, I mean, I think there have to be cases in which, unfortunately, the world is just set up that we can't completely guarantee uh, the conditions for ideal human dignity or sufficient human dignity for everyone. And, and, and at that point, I'm not sure that we're going to have any real alternative, but to default to some kind of consequentialist calculation, maybe minimizing violations of, of human dignity or trying to preserve as much as we can intact in an emergency situation, something like that. I mean, what makes me suspicious of the kind of case you describe, though, is that it doesn't sound like a case like that, because I, I I'd need to hear more about why it's strictly necessary for us to sacrifice this one child a year. And moreover, it's a it's a sub-theme in the book, but I do think it's an important part of our concept of dignity, that delusion, indulging fantasy, right, is I think to the detriment of human dignity, right? To the extent that people are guided by fantastic, superstitious, false idols, right? They're living in the dark in a way that is not really consistent with the with with living. A dignified human life, right? And so, the the, the situation you describe seems to involve the presence of a certain set of re- religious rituals. And I don't think anything of that sort could possibly justify as necessary for human dignity the sacrifice of a of a child. Although there may be situations in which the sacrifice of some people is unfortunately necessary because we face a a, a trade off. The world is imperfect, and at that point. I don't really have an objection to people making something like utilitarian arguments, although I I would insist that the arguments would would have to pay special attention to considerations having to do with the preservation of human dignity and not say that because this is an emergency situation, we just get to forget about human dignity and, and go full hog and act like animals, right?
0: So let me tweak the case a little bit. So let's say that I'll give you a why there's a causal relationship between the sacrifice of the kids and let's remove talk of the gods. Let's say um, what's going on is that the kids are being sold off into sex slavery to a bunch of uh, very wealthy Americans and that's how they're able to fund this wonderful lifestyle. And so the kids are removed from the society, sold into sex slavery, maybe raped and killed so that new kids kind of come in and their society kind of keeps doing this But those that are living on the island, as I say, any observer comes in and says, this is a very dignified place. Everybody treats each other with respect. Once people are exported off the island well, horrible things happen to them. Descriptively, do you think that this is a dignified society?
1: Well, it's a dignified society if you pay attention only to those people who are enjoying on the island the benefits of the relevant forms of mutual treatment, right? But the point about talking about human dignity, and this is, I think, actually in common with the utilitarian tradition, is that it won't permit arbitrary exclusions on whose lives are taken into account, right? And the fact that this local uh, dignity is being shored up backs of these various forms of sex trafficking for the sake of wealthy Americans, right? I mean, the question is, is going to be, I mean, We haven't really talked about this, but it's important to my account, just to flesh it out a little bit, that the sort of respect that counts for human dignity consists for me in a disposition to act towards others for their sake, right? And I don't see how anyone could think that a disposition to buy some kids from some other island to serve as some wealthy person's sex slave, just so these other people can have a great time and flatter themselves that they're living in total dignity, right? I don't see anybody could say uh, that this is acting for the sake of the children who are sold into s- sex slavery. It seems precisely the opposite. It seems like they're precisely being forsaken in order to gratify other kinds of desires. And this is this is the feature of even my view that retains a, a kind of opposition to certain kinds of consequentialism, right? Because the anxiety about consequentialism is that it will be tempted. To forsake people unnecessarily, not just in emergency situations where unfortunately somebody's going to have to die or be sacrificed, but also in those situations where nobody has to die, except that the demand that we maximize aggregate welfare means that some the few are going to have to be uh, sacrificed in that way and forsaken. and 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 that, the dignitarian, I think, is right to say, we 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 wouldn't want to live in a human civilization that was prepared to do that, because that would be to fail to attend to every life for its own sake.
0: So there's a sense in which a difficulty emerges, which is from what I understand, you've got a cosmopolitan account of human dignity. In other words, it's not just about, we can't section it off and say, well, things are dignified on the island because we know horrible things are happening elsewhere. And one way to just sort of determine whether we have a dignity for humanity really would be to have a very global perspective. And this this creates a difficulty for the how well are we doing account. In other words, you could be living in a place where it seems that there's dignity, but because there's so much suffering happening abroad, uh, and we can think about even examples of, you know, these children being whisked off. I don't think it's necessarily that far away from the kinds of uh, horrible labor camps that you could have where you've got kids making iPhones or Nike shoes in, in parts of the third world, and this is a beneficiary for people in other parts of the world. You might say, you think that you live in a dignified society, but once you look at the full picture, you realize how our common humanity is being severely undermined. And we are nowhere near the sort of dream we have of uh, common human dignity.
1: Yeah, but why, is, why isn't that an advantage of my view? Because because that that would precisely seem to deliver exactly what the classical utilitarians always hoped for, namely a, a relatively common and universally accessible standard that would enable us to fairly decisively show, well, you're flattering yourself that this is a good society, but here's a clear problem that conflicts with this underlying commitment. I mean, you're absolutely right. This is not an ideal theory in the sense that it's kind of postulating some kind of ideal dignitarian utopia for the the, the globe, but it but but it's it's i mean as i get older i realize that i'm more and more of an anarchist than i ever realized i mean i, I mean i think the real source of human indignity for the most part is institutions right? and that's really what what screws people over right i mean i think that applies in spades to the holocaust for example it's not just separate individual people being intoxicated by some crazy fascist ideology and and exterminating people. What horrifies one about it is that it was all organized and it was precisely the presence of an institutional hierarchy of authority that disabled the ordinary effective responses that we would expect other people's presence to stimulate, right? So I have no brief, for example, for a kind of nationalist view that says the nation state is somehow the the outer boundary of our dignitarian concern. I mean, to this extent, while I think Rawls got a lot of things right and, and, and was moving in the right direction as far as insisting on the importance of dignity is concerned, his decision to localize a concern for human dignity to justice in one country. <laughs> to, to use the the old the old fashioned communist term, right? You know that rather spoils the effect. I, I want to preserve, I want to precisely come up with a view that would attune people on a dignity. You know, it's like it's it's like the same you know, Peter Singer has always made this move, right? You know, in in the in the context of utilitarianism. Says, well, look, if you really care about the baby in the pond, there's nothing really different about caring about the starving people in the global south, right? I don't see why that move isn't equally available to a dignitarian of my stripe, right? If somebody points out, as you just did, look, the fact that we're fixated all the time on national prosperity means that we're failing to pay attention to all of these things that we're doing collectively that is failing to treat people on the other side of the planet for their own sakes, right? Uh, Now, the question's about what we could do and whether whether there's an easy solution, but attuning people to the reality of the problem and getting them out of this general mindset that the only thing we're responsible for is whatever's defined by some local loyalty, uh, an identity, a citizenship, a responsibility just for our fellow Americans or Whoever it might happen to be, that I, I precisely would embrace that. And I think it's an advantage of the view, because it gives it potentially the same critical force that the classical utilitarians always hope for. But but without the feature of classical utilitarianism that it's sometimes prepared to forsake people for the greater good, which doesn't that that, that seems to be not something we we should embrace.